aviation particularly or aviation in general, uh, it's this very unique situation where the ultimate decision maker uh, right there uh, in the cockpit can die at any moment. And all our procedures are written in blood. It's we've, we've successfully fought other people and gotten, you know, killed them or gotten them to retreat in combat or someone died and we observed that and we wrote down in our checklist and in our training how to prepare for those situations in the future. It's, so, so like you look at commercial aviation accident rates from the 1950s to today and it asymptotically collapses uh, once we institute the NTSB and, and really study each accident and then train each pilot for these things. So it's, it's not like a surgeon and it's not like a, you know, an investment banker or a trader trading someone else's money. Um, it really is your life. Like a surgeon, the other person dies, not you. Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I look for is the answer to the question, what is the role that stress plays in the creative process? How do creative people work with the stress that they have to go through in order to release that which they, they want to release? Today I interviewed Patrick Larson, the CEO of Zen Ledger, a cryptocurrency SaaS firm that helps people, investors in crypto uh, manage their taxes, something that I've had to deal with in my own life and it's pretty stressful. Uh, and he has a lot of wisdom to share about stress because he has been in the Navy as a helicopter pilot in Iraq. Um, he worked for Amazon. He was also into investment banking and now he's the CEO of a startup. All four of these things are incredibly stressful from different angles, completely different angles. And in Iraq, he was dealing with life and death situations. Uh, and in investment banking, he was dealing with high workloads, uh, startup founder dealing with high uncertainty. So he has a lot of wisdom to share, and I think you'll really get a lot of value out of this episode. Uh, please let me know what you think, and subscribe on iTunes by finding us for on at Crazy Wisdom. Hope you have a great day. Welcome to the show, Crazy Wisdom. Uh, my guest here is Patrick Larson. Uh, can you go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me on, Stuart. Um, so I'm currently the CEO of zenledger.io. We're a startup SaaS company that helps cryptocurrency investors and CPAs with tax preparation on their cryptocurrency investments. Hmm. And uh, as we just talked about before recording, that seems like a, two things that could be pretty stressful. Anybody who invested in crypto over the last year uh, and then had to do their taxes, uh, it's been incredibly stressful for me. Uh, and you're, so you're solving this incredibly stressful uh, problem for people. Uh, what led you to choose this as the thing you wanted to create? Yeah, so, so about a year ago, uh, I was um, stepping away from an e-commerce startup and I'd, I'd been looking at um, startup ideas for a little while and I, I wanted to get back on the forefront of um, technology. So um, I'd, I'd worked at Amazon and then e-commerce startup and it was, I was kind of at a career inflection point where I could stay in e-commerce or, or I could kind of uh, look where, you know, wherever things might take me. And with cryptocurrency, it looked like it rhymed a lot with a lot of things I already understood. Uh, I'd been working in technology for about five years. And previous to that, um, I'd, I'd got my MBA with an accounting and finance track and worked as an investment banker. Uh, so so I, I, I kind of understood the economics of, of um, cryptocurrency as well as 
uh, the, the market mechanics and then, you know, the, the promises of, of this potential new technology in a couple different places. And that seemed uh, terribly fascinating to me. So I kind of went into a broad networking search mode trying to find, you know, the smartest people I knew in blockchain. And as, as we talked through real structural issues in, you know, summer 2017, um, there were a lot of ICO ideas. There were a lot of people proposing obviously impractical things um, mm -hmm. to do on a very low transaction, slow, expensive uh, database that traveled around the world. Um, and, but one thing that wasn't a solved problem was uh, compliance, paying taxes, uh, be, being on the right side of regulation and the law. Um, you know, it's just really early times in the industry to, for people to worry about that a lot. And there was so much uh, gray area that people couldn't, didn't necessarily know how to comply even if they wanted to. And have you had a lot of talk with your customers about the problem that you're solving for them? Yeah, we, you know, we've, we've had you know, hundreds of people uh, go through the software. We have paying customers. We've talked to a lot of CPAs mm -hmm. and a lot of lawyers. Uh, as well to make sure that uh, we're getting things as correct as possible mm -hmm. and you know, always presenting uh, a conservative, defensible approach if mm -hmm. need. And then if, if you and your tax professional uh, want to take a more aggressive approach, uh, you can and you have you know, the data uh, from us uh, to, to go ahead and make those decisions and tax elections. And are some of your customers saying that this is a huge stress point that you're solving for them? Oh yeah. So our, our seed investors um, that invest in the company in December uh, 2017, January 2018, uh, when the markets were incredibly frothy, they they were all like you know deep into crypto, multiple tech uh, founders and you know blockchain company founders, and they they knew this was a huge pain point, and they were going to be spending a lot of money uh, on CPAs and kind of stealing themselves for potential fines on uh, and things like that. So it was all uh, a very obvious pain point. Uh, I, I fear from a startup perspective that it's, it's too obvious a pain point that we're solving, but uh -huh. it'll be it. And can you talk a little bit about the stress once you, uh, actually accept someone else's money as a, as a startup founder, how does that change the level of stress that you experience as running a company? Yeah, I'd, I'd say, um, you know, the way I think about it is I don't have any, uh, imposter syndrome per se. I'm like, Oh, like the, these people are really trusting me now and I don't feel I'm up to the task. Uh, um, so, so I, I take it as a huge compliment and I understand from the, ins the investor's perspective, um, this is portfolio theory for them. They, they are making multiple investments. Um, not just one investment in me. I didn't, I didn't take, you know, my grandma's uh, pension money to, to do this. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, that that would have been very stressful is taking somebody else <laughs> who doesn't know what they're doing but you're you're taking people who know that this is just one investment out of 100 that they're going to make and that you know they're hoping to make 10x off of one of them or 100x off of one of them yeah um, and for me i know this isn't my last startup like i i promise my investors i've specifically told them like uh so, so my background uh broadly is uh, i i went to the air force academy for my undergraduate degree i, I was a navy uh, search and rescue helicopter pilot with a couple uh, combat tours as a mission commander uh, in, in Iraq and the Middle East and around the world. And then uh, I got my MBA and then I was an investment banker, uh, M&A investment banker. And then uh, I ran a business unit at Amazon and I've been in a couple startups. And Zen Ledger is the first startup I founded myself. Uh -huh. But uh, when, I, when I talk through that background as I'm talking to investors, uh, potential investors, um, one is I, I have a confidence that like I'm as good as any 22-year-old that's been pitching them <laughs> and getting some of their investments. Um, the other is I know my business 
idea sound and I've assembled uh, a good team. Like uh, my other co-founders are, are excellent, high quality, uh, you know, technology, business, legal people that have all been successful in their lives as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, so I know I'm not selling snake oil. I know we can execute on what I'm promising to do. Um, and I know that um, this isn't my last startup. So I'll work like hell, but I know this isn't life and death. Like I've been in life and death situations. Mm -hmm. And when I see an email I don't like, or I'm worried about our cash burn, like I don't have like an adrenaline response. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I do feel uneasy, I can recognize them feeling uneasy and I can take a step back, take a walk, you know, think about why I'm feeling uneasy and then just address the issue or realize that it's not in my control right now to, to completely address the issue. I'll just do what I can. And sometimes the chips fall where they may, but this isn't my last startup. And these things aren't all life and death. They're important. I'll, I'll work like crazy, but uh, you don't need to, uh, you know, like um, freak out about these things. And when you just talked about your bio, you basically said you went from the Navy to investment banking to Amazon. All, all of those things would be considered incredibly stressful for a lot of different people. And you said that uh, when you're pitching investors, you know it's not a life or death thing. Did you have to learn that? Did you, have you experienced the adrenaline rush in a way that taught you, okay, like this is the adrenaline rush. This is something that I am in an actual life or death situation. Can you talk more about how you... Like whether that's just something you've been able to handle your whole life or did you have to learn how to handle it? I think it's just been a long series of learning. So I, as a kid, I was in martial arts and sports and you know, I'm like a very average sized person. I'm like five, eight, 150 pounds. And uh, as a kid, I was always like fifth percentile height. So everyone was always bigger than me. Everyone was always stronger than me. Um, and there was just like, when you're playing sports, uh, football and martial arts, like, you can get injured at any point, like you can get broken in half. And um, my wherewithal was always just being fast and quick and uh, accepting of the physical danger. And so that was, that was some part of the training. And then, you know, military training and Air Force Academy gets you thinking about these things a lot. And then flight training um, it, uh, and driving cars fast and, and riding motorcycles and skydiving, like these are all things I've done. Uh, so I think I'm predisposed to, to uh, th this thinking, but then also had deep, deep training in it as well. Um, it's, it's kind of nature and nurture, probably. And that's uh, uh, something that I recently uh, read a tweet was that we don't rise to the level of our expectations, but we sink to the level of our training. And it seems like you've had a significant amount of training, particularly in the Navy, probably where they taught you how to do they talk to you about the stress response in the Navy or do they just train you how to deal with it? Yeah, so, so there's lots and lots of, so naval aviation particularly, or aviation in general, uh, it's this very unique situation where the ultimate decision maker uh, right there uh, in the cockpit can die at any moment. And all our procedures are written in blood. It's, we've, we've successfully fought other people and gotten, you know, killed them or gotten them to retreat in combat or someone died and we observed that and we wrote down in our checklists and in our training how to prepare for those situations in the future. It's, so, so like you look at commercial aviation accident rates from the 1950s to today, and it asymptotically collapses uh, once we institute the NTSB and, and really study each accident and then train each pilot for these things. So it's, it's not like a surgeon and it's not like a, you know, an investment banker or a trader trading someone else's money. Um, it, it really is your life. Like a surgeon, the other person dies, not you. 
Uh, you know, mm-hmm. so, so it's different with pilots. Like we're incredibly, uh, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're smart people. We're college educated and then we have uh, many years of flight training and then we're really incentivized to not mess up, mm-hmm. uh, you know? Um, and I think that's a little different, but we are trained. We're, we're trained constantly to uh, follow procedures, to, to rely on uh, multiple inputs from multiple uh, crew members on a flight. I would tell an 18 year old, like if you, if you see something and you tell me to break right, I'm going to break right because in that moment you have the best information and I have to trust you. Um, so it seems like uh, most of the things that you've done in your life so far particularly what you're just talking about, the Navy, there's this kind of lots of clear, everything's clear, you know, like, like, as you were saying, there's been a lot of data. So everybody knows what's going to happen if you do this decision. And then in investment banking, it seems like there's a lot of certainty. I'm not sure about that. That's an assumption I'm making. And then in Amazon, they've been doing their thing for a while. So there's a lot of certainty. And now you're entering something, which is an early stage startup, which has a lot of uncertainty about the market, about how you guys can handle everything and all this different stuff. Have you noticed that a level of stress from that entering into a world that's maybe different from what you were doing before? I, I would say that in each place, the, the reason why people are hired into these, um, these tough fields and have to go through a lot of selection factors is specifically because that in the end, they want you to be able to deal with the ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so as a pilot, you, you practice all these maneuvers and procedures and checklists but at each point, like you're expected to be able to think through the situation and adapt to a situation you've never been in. Like, hey, you're in the Western desert in Iraq, it's 2 a.m., no one on your crew has slept, the weather's really bad, and like you, you have certain training, but at each point you're gonna have to take in new information and make a decision. Um, investment banking is actually a lot of sales, at least on the M&A side, and it's trying to get that specific deal to work between these two companies or you know, these bidders and this unique financial situation um, and the personalities involved in it. So you have to be reading people, you have to be reading spreadsheets, you have to be reading the markets, uh, navigating all this. Um, and same thing with Amazon. It's like a dynamic situation, lots of competition globally. You have a lot of resources, but there's uh, a lot of competing um, internal forces to Amazon and then external. Um, and then just the job pressure of the, the system that Amazon has built on uh, the, the, the human resources system, which is uh, uh, kind of notorious. Um, and th- so then in startups, the same thing. Um, it, it, it's all surfing, right? Like it's, it's a wave that's been created. You've decided to ride on it, but you, you didn't create the water. You didn't create the wind. You didn't create the, the coral underneath and you're trying to navigate, um, this thing as best you can while having a limited control and a very dynamic situation that's changing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can kind of embrace the stress and, and, you know, like uh, the, the classic advice of tell yourself you're excited. Don't tell yourself you're scared if you feel an elevated heart rate and, uh, you know, um, you know, restricted blood flow or whatever. Tell yourself, oh, I'm excited. Um, and I have felt that going into pitches, uh, like, oh, like, I'm excited to pitch here. I, I don't think I'm nervous. And, hey, I'll go sit in front of this guy who's, uh, you know, has a high net worth. And this is like the future of my company here. But uh, I'm actually surprised I'm not having a, a stress response. Like, I, I think I'm quite prepared. I think I'm the right guy. Uh, there's a very low chance of this succeeding, but it needs to be done. So let's go do it. Like mm-hmm. each pitch is a very low probability event, but highly significant if it hits. So it's really interesting. So before we started talking, you talked about how you've tried to do meditation. You want to succeed at meditation, but everything you've just said over the last 20 minutes has displayed an incredible amount of, uh, uh, of knowledge about meditation, which I see is, which is continuously coming back to what's going on right now in our current moment. 
and responding to that instead of responding to fears or things that we create inside of our head. Can you discuss what the difficulty you've experienced in meditation has been? Uh, maybe it's just creating a new habit, um, you know, uh, and maybe it's, uh, I didn't see an immediate benefit, which is probably a short, a short sight thing on my part. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then like perhaps I'm just doing other things that give me the benefits of meditation, uh, whether it's like driving and listening to a podcast, taking my kids to the park, uh, playing sports, working out, going for walks, um, reading, like maybe all these things are letting me do some back end processing, um, and then uh, being self-aware enough to, to be in the moment when I need to be in the moment. So then if you don't do meditation, what is there any way that you can increase your self-awareness or work on that? Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are. I haven't, I haven't gone back to the topic of increasing self-awareness in a while. I, I've, I've, you know, I've read through you know, meditation stuff, Buddhist, Buddhist stuff, and then you know, what, what is creativity in the moment, you know, the, the kind of like uh, Erickson and Gladwell type stuff. Um, so, so I care very much about the subject, um, but I just haven't revisited yet. Like, oh, how do I, how do I expand my self-awareness uh, even further from this point yet? Mm -hmm. And what is meditation to you? Uh, so, so I think it's the, the classic concept of, of sitting quietly with yourself uh, for an extended period of time, right? And, and, and the best description I've heard is learning that your mind is chaotic. It's not necessarily finding a calm center. Uh, it's, it's like learning that all these things are going on. So it's, it's more self-awareness first. And then uh, from that should come some self-control or control of uh, you know, the situation uh, after that. And so what's next for Zen Ledger? What's next for you? What, what, uh, what are the big things you want to accomplish over the next six months? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really early days. So we're, we're quite focused on expanding the product line um, going into April uh, 2019 and, and that tax season. Um, there are a lot of things that will be out of our control, like if the you know, United States IRS uh, decides to change policy, um, if, if, uh, if the crypto markets continue in this, this flat way or if they go down or they go up from here. And, um, you know, just broad you know, adoption in general of cryptocurrency. I think we're early there in terms of people using it every day. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's more of a speculative asset. And then mm -hmm. it's a way to, um, you know, raise capital so that you can hire people and have them sit down and grapple with problems over time and, and, and solve some problems. But we're, mm -hmm. we're early on in all of that. So what I'm excited about is, you know, improving our product, making sure that CPAs investors uh, get uh, you know, cryptocurrency investors, our customers get a lot of value out of the automation and the clarity, you know, the auto-populated tax forms so that this is like one less stress point for them. They, they, they know that at least they've, they've filed their taxes, they've raised their hand and said, hey, IRS, I'm a white hat. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I'm not evading taxes. I'm paying uh, taxes and here's all my transactions. So, um, when clarity comes in, in a couple of years, uh, you know, like our customers will be standing on, on the right side of the law. Mm -hmm. And do you have, uh, can you talk about numbers, how many people you have on your system or? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we've, you know, we've had several hundred people go all the way through, upload their transactions and, and get out, you know, useful tax forms and, you know, a unified spreadsheet that gives you, uh, like all your transactions in one place across mm -hmm. multiple exchanges and wallets. So it's, it's, it's early days yet. We don't have, you know, the huge traction that, that we'd like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens 
uh, as, as we build the product and really start marketing in earnest uh, going into April 2019. But, you know, we're hoping for, you know, tens of thousands of customers and we're, you know, um, pursuing strategic partnerships uh, to, to, to try to uh, make that a reality as well. Mm-hmm. And are you an investor in crypto? You don't have to answer that if we don't feel comfortable, but are you currently investing in crypto? Yeah, yeah, I, I, I do hold cryptocurrency. Uh, I, I feel um, that it's it's a good portfolio bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a way to potentially get in um, very early when uh, an asset class may rise. And then I, I need to do it to understand uh, my customers as well. Even if I had no interest in speculating on cryptocurrency, the, the fact that I'm running this company means I need to be you know, trading and, and uh, moving these assets around and, and um, you know, listening to the scams and the FUD and the pump and dump uh, mm-hmm. as well. Have you experienced any stress uh, due to the price rise and falls? Is that something that stresses you in any way? Yeah, I mean, it's not fun when you feel like 50% less wealthy than you did a month ago. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, the reason why uh, high-frequency uh, algorithm trades have taken over is that you know, they're a lot better at this uh, than people, uh, for the most part. Um, but again, like I've, I've been through a couple of these uh, instances before, uh, like so the 2007 uh, real estate crash. Um, you know, I, I watched the value of my condo go down, um, and then uh, you know my investments as well. That wasn't fun. Um, and then you know this 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 cryptocurrency period uh, with fits and starts from January through now uh, isn't fun. And, you know, the, whatever the coming economic downturn is like, it, it's inevitable that'll happen. Uh, you should just be prepared. You know, a big wave's coming mm-hmm. and you're going to have to ride it as best you can. There's no way to avoid those waves for, you know, 99.9% of us. And this is a lot of, a lot of people are talking about this now that there is going to be a, a downturn. I think we're in the longest bull market. And I mean, at, at least the last hundred years, I don't know if maybe forever, but um, and a lot of people think that the, that the next one's going to be big, bigger than 2008, maybe, maybe even rivaling the Great Depression. Are you among people who think like that? I would say so. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. if, if I had to bet on the severity of the next uh, downturn, I would, I would bet that it is greater than the 2008 downturn mm-hmm. um, because uh, China will be uh, more greatly affected by this next downturn. It won't be as insulated. And um, I think that China's economy is built on a pile of cards and lies, right? And mm-hmm. so the first bank or the first insurance company that goes under will start cascading uh, through the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll, you know, we'll see how they react to it. I think they have uh, a high degree of control over their local currency, mm-hmm. um, but they're really interwoven with the global economy now. Um, I think in the EU, um, you can see that the, they'll likely fracture even more, right? There won't be this great um, response from France and Germany um, this time around. I, I think all the political capital has been spent um, mm. in the last 10 years. Um, Japan won't have an effectual response, and uh, America may not either. Um, you know, the, the leadership we have in place and the amount of bullets each central bank has uh, like we've just printed trillions over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And so all you can do next time, uh, I think, is is make sure no one starves mm-hmm. and kind of admit that money is a fiction and um, you're going to have to let a lot of these uh, debts um, go unpaid and these insurance policies lapse and a lot of old wealth is going to have to be evaporated. Um, and, and you're just going to have to make sure no one starves in, in the interim as, you know, like, 
keep the farms running, keep the electricity going, keep the hospitals running, and like we'll all figure this out together. Um, I think that's going to have to be the case. And you know, we didn't. America didn't get out of the Great Depression until World War II, and the rest of the world didn't get out of the Great Depression until after World War II, when half of it had burnt down. It wasn't a pretty thing. It wasn't an easy thing. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I worry about the most. Is 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 uh, is another worldwide conflict after after a downturn. Um, uh, what do you think? What do you, what do you think is the is the role that crypto will play uh, in this in this uh, um, potential downturn? I mean, I think it'll find its 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 places to to deliver value. Like, I mean, in the end, what touches the physical world? Like, what what like I have shelter above my head. I have clean water. I have food. Uh, people aren't trying to kick in my door with weapons to take what I have and harm my family. Right. Like cryptocurrency doesn't affect any of that, man. Mm-hmm. Neither does a brick of gold. Mm-hmm. Like they're, these are, you know, ridiculous constructs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we live in, we live in tribes. We live in a physical world right now and we have like physical needs and money is an incredible facilitator of that. And so is capitalism. Uh, and so is technology. Um, and we need to leverage all that stuff and we need to like not let uh, our deep belief in entrenched moneyed interest uh, harm you know billions of people like and have them starve because we don't want some hundred year old bank to fail and and their you know 20 most wealthy investors to lose their money mm-hmm. like you know like if you read about history, you'll, you'll see that there's constantly, you know, uprisings and what happens is, you know, at some point, uh, life becomes bad enough for the bottom 50% or 90% or 99% that they rise up and kill the rich people, smash the debt records and some farmer or warrior or something becomes the new leader. And then after a couple hundred years, like, uh, things get worse again, right? Like Mao was, was a common man. Of you know George Washington, uh, you know like these like it happens everywhere. It's not a unique thing. Like the Russians just went through it. So the Chinese just went through it in the forties. The Russians went through it in the the teens. Uh, you know, the French Revolution was late seventeen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds. American Revolution was late seventeen hundreds. Like it, and it happens all over the world all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you you smash the debt record and put someone else in charge and start over again and then over time it'll deteriorate and you need to work again. Like mm-hmm. maybe we're we're past that. Maybe we can all learn all the right lessons so um, mm-hmm. it doesn't happen in one country or to ten million or hundred million people. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe now with, with the global economy and seven billion people all tied in, uh, we can have a, a better response than off with their heads. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So I, I wanted to get to this. Uh, I originally reached out to you because uh, another guest on the podcast, Michelle Singh, had posted something about electric batteries, and you, you, and you said, "Oh, just wait until we have uh, bacteria pooping out nanotubes, carbon nanotubes." Can you talk a little bit more about uh, what that is and and what the potential of that technology is? Yeah. So, so my my undergrad I studied uh, was material science chemistry, and so it was heavily on the chemistry part. Um, and I remember, so that would have been like the year 2000, so 18 years ago, um, nanotubes were just coming out. We were able to make like 20 carbon you know, nanotubes or 50 carbon nanotubes. And, um, I, th- I think like we're, we're at the point where we might be at a materials revolution, right? Um, we name the ages after materials for a reason, like mm-hmm. the stone age, the iron age, uh, um, because, 
the materials man has at their disposal is is how you build the world um, and and unlock greater resources, right? Um, and there was like an oil age, like you see a huge spike uh, in personal, you know, per capita uh, calorie and you know joule consumption when when we figure out um, hydrocarbon uh, extraction, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so now we're at a point where uh, you know there's all these perhaps like superconducting materials at, at room temperature and and it's all just about you know resource resources and then um the cost you pay right so right now we're in this trap where hydrocarbons are great but they pollute uh the entire world right and locally it results in you know lung cancer and people falling over dead and then globally it'll result in you know um who knows but obviously uh, bad things as global warming like uh, takes effect it may lead to global cooling or global warming we're not sure, but it's it's going to disrupt uh, current uh, weather and food patterns, and and so uh, hurt our our daily calorie intake in in the end, right? So so I'm a net technology optimist. I think if we can keep things together for the next thirty years and not have a giant nuclear war or a giant superbug or something like there's there's so many talented people all around the world working on this stuff. Like um, and humanity isn't wasting vast amounts of our potential. Like uh, if, if you're born poor in um, the third world, you know, in quotation marks, whatever you want to call it, uh, South America, Africa, uh, East, Eastern Europe, you know, South Asia, uh, East Asia, now, um, you can still get the internet and you can still see what a Nobel laureate published 50 years ago and that chain of discovery up till now. And so a PhD today is like way smarter and way more accurate on everything and has way better tools and way better education than a PhD 50 or 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. and, compounding every day there's like another girl in nigeria another uh kid in guatemala that you know wasn't going to get an education 10 years ago but now has an amazing world class better than newton uh had uh education and it compounds every year it's accelerating faster so you know within five or ten years i think we'll figure out how to get biological nano machines to start doing a lot of work for us um i think it's really hard to get uh inorganic um you know steel-based uh, little robots running around, but it's probably pretty easy to program bacteria who just need some nutrients and some sunlight to mm -hmm. just produce lots of useful things for us. I think mm -hmm. we'll all be eating artificial, uh, not artificial meat, it's real meat, because uh, like cow meat comes from a cow you know, ingesting grass and then a bunch of bacteria in its gut processing it to turn into protein chains. Mm -hmm. Like proteins all made by plants and sunlight um, no animals actually make protein. So I don't, I don't think our kids would have any problem eating something with the consistency of chicken that came from uh, algae that just layer by layer built up your, your what used to be a chicken breast or what used to be you know, your, your pig-based ribs or your beef-based steak um, will, will be indifferent. You know, like Fuji apples aren't supposed to be the size of your two fists together and contain a pound of sugar, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's, that's, wow, uh, just blew my mind. But uh, I, I think you would enjoy reading a book, you might have already read it, called The Beginning of Infinity. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I've had it recommended by a couple of friends. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to listen to it on audiobook, and I'm not mm -hmm. getting through it very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, but it, it is like a, a, a very interesting track for sure, and I, yeah. I, I look forward to getting through the book. He's, his basic point is that um, the one thing that separates humans from other animals is our ability to transmit knowledge through symbols and through... Um, uh, symbols, basically, language and things like that, uh, and that w at, in the Enlightenment we have a period of 
actually having a formula for turning knowledge into applicable uh, um, applications, engineering on all these different things. And as soon as we solve one problem, it leads to a whole bunch of other questions. Uh, and so that we, we human beings, because of our ability to transmit knowledge, which had DNA was the only thing that transmitted knowledge before, but now we've been able to transmit it through abstract uh, symbols. Um, and so now each problem that we're going to have, each problem that we have is solvable, uh, but then it will always lead to more problems um, that we can then solve. Uh, this is very interesting, kind of similar to what you're talking about. Um, I, I highly recommend it to you or other listeners who are out there. Yeah, um, it's like the destination, uh, the journey is the destination, right? Mm -hmm. Interesting, yep, another meditation there. Uh, and so we have about five minutes left and, and this gives me a good topic. Do you have any books that you've read or any articles or any ideas that you've recently read in the last maybe 10 to 30 days that have impacted you and that you'd like other people to hear? Yeah, I'd, I'd say like, I actually believe you can almost start anywhere and get to where where you get right. Um, so if if you're really interested in uh, cryptocurrencies, like just just Google and start with any of the books, and most of them there's 90% overlap. I kind of agree with Tyler Cohen on that. Like he can read economics papers really fast because there's only you know 500 words of of novel thought in each one, and the rest mm -hmm. is just filler or or stuff that's based on past things that he's already read. So. Um, you know, start a foundation anywhere and then any uh, next book you read will be interesting. Uh, I try to read uh, more fiction nowadays because I actually went through like a, a 10 year binge of, of nonfiction. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Three Body Problem would be mm -hmm. a great one to read. Uh, it touches on um, human innovation and, you know, the Fermi paradox and, and some other really interesting things. Um, uh, you know, Sapiens by Harari is a, a great place to start thinking about this stuff. Uh, one of the books that I touched on uh, was debt, uh, 5,000 year history. Um, that's where I kind of mentioned that, uh, you know, uh, humanity has been through a lot of these cycles of, of, of debt crises or slavery crises resulting in revolutions and a, a resetting of, you know, the economic uh, ledger and then proceeding from there. Mm. Um, so, so kind of like these big deep history books are quite interesting. I used to read a lot of biographies, so I would recommend go, go find any biography that's interesting to you and read those because it's like the only way you get multiple uh, lives worth of experience in you so that you're more likely to be able to uh, handle the stress in the moment and be creative and make good decisions because you realize like uh, these people uh, who have done great things, like you don't write biographies about uh, random people. You write them about people who accomplished uh, great things or had incredible lives. Like uh, it, it can kind of um, take a little bit of the pressure off, I'd say, but also allow you to succeed a little bit. Um, yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, how can people find you to find out more about um, Zenlinger and what you're working on or if they want to reach out to you with questions? Yeah, uh, so um, zenledger.io is the website. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Patrick Larson, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-L-A-R-S-E-N. Uh, -E uh, and um, yeah, uh, I'm on LinkedIn as well. Feel free to reach out. Cool. Well, thank you so much, Patrick. It's been a huge pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Stuart.